I think we'll have to hear more from President-elect Biden on what he's going to do with China and trade policies. But I still remember a bumper sticker on a pickup truck that was always at the grain elevator. This was during the 80s farm crisis. It said trade, not aid. And I remember my dad always used to talk about, we just want a fair shot. Hello and welcome to Wherever John May Roam, the National Corn Growers Association podcast. This is where leaders, growers, and stakeholders in the corn industry can turn for big-picture conversations about the state of the industry and its future. I'm Dusty Weiss, and I'll be introducing your host, Association CEO John Doggett. You can join John every month as he travels the country on a mission to advocate for America's corn farmers. From the fields of the Corn Belt to the D.C. Beltway, we'll make sure that the growers who feed America have a say in the issues that are important to them, with key leaders who are shaping the future of agriculture. In this episode, after a long and unconventional presidential campaign, President-elect Joe Biden is getting set to transition to the White House. And we are going to talk with someone who was at every campaign stop with both candidates about what got us to this point, what we can expect in the months ahead, and what it all means for corn farmers. CNN's senior White House correspondent Jeff Zeleny, who grew up on a corn farm in Nebraska, will join us with all his insights. If you haven't yet, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast in your favorite app. That way you can take us with you in your truck, your tractor, on your next trip and never miss an update from John. Also, make sure that you follow the NCGA on Twitter at National Corn and sign up for the National Corn Growers Association newsletter at ncga.com. And with that, it's time to once again introduce John. John Doggett, the CEO of the National Corn Growers Association. John, we're staring down the barrel of a presidential transition. It has been a long and winding road. Certainly, I don't think that there's ever been a boring presidential election, at least not in my life, but this one has been more interesting and more complicated than most. But on January 20th, Joe Biden will be sworn in as the 46th president of the United States. And like any presidential transition, that is going to have implications for America's corn industry. Dusty, you know, it's it's our job at NCGA to monitor the political winds of change and to make sure America's corn growers are positioned to thrive and, and to do well no matter who's in office. So we wanted to take this opportunity to dig a, a little bit deeper and explore how the new presidential administration's policies will impact agriculture. And today we're joined by a guest who's arguably the foremost expert in this presidential campaign and its implications. Jeff Zeleny is CNN's senior White House correspondent, and he's covered presidential politics for more than 20 years for outlets like the Chicago Tribune and the New York Times. Jeff, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Hey, John, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You bet. And we really appreciate your jumping on. Jeff, it might surprise folks to hear it, but even as a globetrotting journalist who regularly reports to work at the White House, you've got your roots, like so many people, on the farm in the heart of corn country. Tell us a little bit about your background and where you were raised. Well, hey, I grew up in uh, Exeter, Nebraska, which is in Fillmore County, Nebraska, which is uh, in, you know, just about an hour uh, west or so of Lincoln, the state capital, of course. And it is the heart of corn country. I grew up on a a farm. We had uh, corn and soybeans and raised hogs and cattle. My mom still lives on that farm. My nephews uh, help her farm uh, the ground and she rents some of it out as well. So she's still the CEO of our operation. But look, I grew up, you know, with uh, a field of corn looking just out my bedroom window. I went to a small high school, Exeter, Nebraska high school at the time. So uh, when I moved out to Washington, the summer of 2001, actually, 
when people uh, heard that I went to Exeter, they thought it was the fancy prep school on the East Coast. <laughs> I said, no, no, it's the other Exeter in Exeter, Nebraska. So I had uh, 12 kids in my class. But uh, look, I went to the University of Nebraska, studied journalism and political science there, and then uh, have been very fortunate to um, you know, work at a bunch of newspapers. And when I did get to Washington, people said, how did you get from the farm to Washington? How did that happen? And I said, well, I drove east. I mean, they were sort of surprised that uh, a farm kid could get hired by the New York Times or whatever. But I, I literally did go from Nebraska to the Des Moines Register, my first job at a college, the Chicago Tribune. And then I ended up in Washington. So I literally did just drive east. But uh, I still very much have farm love and roots in my background. And uh, God willing, I'll be home for Christmas, but we'll see. Well, that's an interesting story, Jeff. Like so many people who find themselves in Washington, D.C. from the hinterlands, we all have a different story and how we got here and, and what it was like. But tell us a little bit more about how did your experience growing up shape how you do your job today? I think the biggest thing is just uh, the work ethic. My dad at the time was running our family farm and he uh, was just a great believer in, you know, you get up early and you work hard and, you know, you work throughout the day. So I think now any day that I have at work, uh, even though some of these have been pretty crazy and chaotic, uh, nothing is as uh, hard as the work on a farm. So I think the biggest thing is just the work ethic. It really has just, you know, instilled that in me. And I think just honesty as well. When I talk to my audience and do reporting, I have in mind people in my family and people I grew up with who are listening to this and they are trusting you to deliver the news. So I think that for whatever reason, I think it's probably because I knew I wouldn't make a very good farmer. I just don't quite have those uh, skill sets. I wanted to be a journalist from a very young age. And my dad would read newspapers and you know Successful Farming and a lot of other magazines and things. And I would just uh, watch him you know, I really wanted to be a reporter really from a very early age because you can ask anyone any question. That's the job to ask people questions. So I think that I had a bit of a curiosity bug. I was interested in uh, in just being on the front row of history. I never could have predicted I'd be this fortunate, but it's been pretty interesting. So Jeff, to pivot to where we're going to be going in the next few weeks, the next few months, the next few years, who are going to be the major players in the Biden administration. Look, we're already seeing the beginnings of uh, the forming of the government, and it really is sort of a throwback to who he was surrounded by in his long run as you know, a senator and as vice president. I'm thinking back to the transitions of, uh, of Governor George W. Bush in Texas and, and uh, Senator Barack Obama. They sort of surrounded themselves by some, you know, some new figures who they didn't know as well. This is a different time because Biden was elected, whether you like it or not because of his long experience in Washington. So he's surrounding himself by people you know, who have worked with him for a long time. So I think that you know, as we record this now, um, the week after Thanksgiving, uh, you know, we know the Secretary of State, we know the Secretary of Homeland Security, we know uh, the Treasury Secretary nominee, all these have to get confirmed in the Senate. We don't know uh, who's gonna be the Ag Secretary, for example, we know some names of that, but there is an incredible push and pull underway for diversity in the cabinet, uh, from regional diversity, you know, to ideological diversity, to a racial diversity. But I think the most important people in a Biden administration are going to be, you know, the president-elect himself, obviously Joe Biden. He knows how government works. He, I can't think of someone who has come into office. There isn't someone actually in our history who's come into office who has that much knowledge about the government, for good or bad. You know, I don't think we're going to have many surprises from Joe Biden. I don't think we're going to wake up many mornings and be like, oh, what did he tweet? What did he say? It may actually be fairly boring. 
you know, but I think the biggest task without question is the economy and getting a handle on coronavirus. So I think that that is going to be at the center of everything in the first 100 days, certainly. And how he does that will probably give us a good a window into how successful or not his administration is. But I think, I guess the economic team, first and foremost, is going to be some of the most important people in his administration. You know, and also, I would also say Mitch McConnell. Of course, Mitch McConnell's not in his administration, but I'm fascinated to see if Republicans uh, maintain their control of the Senate. And that, of course, is all dependent on what happens in Georgia. On January 5th, as we know, there are two uh, runoff races in the state of Georgia. And if Democrats win both, well, then it's a 50-50 tie. So Vice President Kamala Harris will break the tie. But I think the Biden team is preparing for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. And boy, he is so important to this entire Biden equation. And now he decides to uh, conduct himself. He may be one of the most important people other than the president in terms of going forward, what type of policies get enacted. Jeff, you brought up the pending pick for Ag Secretary, and, and certainly that's something that has a, a big impact on the world of agriculture going forward here. But there are two very different candidates uh, who are being considered for that job right now. What are some of the factors that President-elect Biden has to balance in not just selecting that cabinet seat, but in filling out his cabinet in general? You know, just talking with advisors to uh, President-elect Biden and you know, he has a transition team which has been working throughout the summer and the fall getting ready for this. And that's not being presumptive. That is what incoming presidents are supposed to do. Because of the Presidential Transition Act, really after 9-11, there was a huge uh, study and a makeup of, uh, of how transitions need to be sort of more uh, forward-leaning and really there has to be a government in place. So because of all that, there are a couple different names. Former North Dakota Senator Heidi Heidkamp is a name we hear mentioned a lot for Ag Secretary. We also are, are in recent days hearing more about a Congresswoman Marsha Fudge from Ohio. So those would be sort of some very different spectrums, I guess, both Democrats, of course, but one from a, a farm state um, in particular, and one you know who might speak to more of the other programs of USDA. Of course, it's you know a sprawling, huge agency which would speak to more hunger issues and other matters. So I'm not sure if it'll be either one of those two. We also hear Tom Vilsack's name, of course, the former Ag Secretary, former governor of Iowa. He, of course, served for eight years as Ag Secretary. I'd be a little surprised if he would come back into the mix here, frankly. But someone from uh, the West Coast, California, could also be, you know, huge uh, Ag State as well, could also be in the mix here. But I think, first and foremost, I think the thing that drives most of these decisions is overall makeup of the cabinet. Someone described to me that putting a cabinet together is like putting a puzzle together. And you really need to have, at least President-elect Biden has said he's committed to having diversity. He wants his cabinet to look like America. Well, we'll see if there's a Republican in the cabinet. There has been in uh, the Obama administration. Uh, he had uh, two Republicans serving at a, at a different period. In the Bush administration, there was a Democrat serving in his cabinet. So we'll see if that happens in the Biden administration. There could be a Republican for Ag Secretary, but I think that I would be a little surprised if that was the case this time. So we'll see. It could be Heidi Heidkamp, Marsha Fudge, or some name we're not even thinking of. And John, of course, as the CEO of NCGA, you spend a lot of time in Washington advocating on behalf of America's corn farmers. You know all the players that are under consideration for Ag Secretary right now. What does the NCGA want to see in an Ag Secretary, and how do you go about ensuring that whoever the pick is, that they are successful? The most important thing that we're looking for 
in an ag secretary is someone that'll listen, someone who will take the time to say, you know, I really need to know how this affects people who produce corn. I need to understand how this affects that rural community like Exeter, Nebraska. How does that affect those folks there? You know, don't be too concerned about their their partisan views, but will they listen? And and once they listen, I think we have a great story to tell. And hopefully we will we will have some some opportunity to build that relationship that benefits both the secretary and the folks that produce corn in this country. You know, there's there's been a lot of discussion in, in recent days about if this person were to get it or if that person were to get it. One of the opportunities that may avail itself in this selection, and certainly we are not, and let me emphasize this about 18 times, we are not advocating for one candidate over another. But to get someone who is a little bit outside of what we've seen in the norm might be to our benefit if we make it to our benefit, because you know what? It's not the department uh, for agriculture, it's the Department of Agriculture. And certainly if we can expand the view that the average American has of USDA as a very large department that has a lot of people doing a lot of different things, you know, that might make it a little easier to pass a farm bill, might be a little easier to defend spending at USDA. So, you know, that the opportunity for us to bring more and more Americans to see what USDA does, I think is going to be a benefit to us. And I think any of the folks that you've mentioned, any of the folks I've seen mentioned um, in the press in recent days, all of them, I think, to a certain degree, one way or another, can do that. And I think that is going to be really, really important, particularly as we look at redistricting. And that's going to happen uh, here in the next few years because of the census and the reapportionment. You know, right now, there are 435 House members and only 41 of those House districts in the United States of America have 20,000 or more farmers in that district. And most of these districts have 700 to 900,000 people. And so to think that there's only 41 that have more than 20,000 farmers in it, that gives you an idea that we really need to expand the visual of what USDA is all about. It isn't just about farmers. It's about very, very obviously, and, and very importantly, the people who produce the food. But then there are the folks that make sure it's safe, the folks that make sure it gets transported around either the country or, or the world. It's also about how do you feed people who are hungry, whether they're in the United States, and unfortunately, there's way too many people who are hungry in the United States, and how do we, how do we get food overseas to, to folks who also need that food? So, you know, we, we might have, and I hope we have, an opportunity to showcase USDA at its very best for the entire country, because that's the way we're going to have more success and more support for the functions at USDA. And this seems like a good time to note that in the time since we recorded this episode, the Biden administration did come down with their pick for Ag Secretary. They've tapped former Iowa Governor and former Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack to again serve as Secretary of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. In response, NCGA President John Linder congratulated Vilsack and said, In Vilsack's eight years leading the department during the Obama administration, corn farmers appreciated his willingness to listen to the input from growers across the country and his steadfast commitment to agriculture, renewable fuels, our environment, 
and USDA's food and nutrition programs. He's been an outspoken advocate for rural America, and we look forward to working together again, along with President-elect Biden, to build long-term demand for our product, mitigate the impact of climate change, seek new markets around the globe, and continue to feed and fuel the world. So, Jeff, you've covered presidential campaigns going all the way back to 2000, Bush-Gore, and you've covered every transition that has come about as a result. How do you see the first 100 days of the Biden administration unfolding? Look, I think it is going to be dominated by really two things, the economic recession and the pandemic. I guess, you know, in my history, the thing that I compare it the most to is 2009, when Obama and Biden were coming in, of course, the country was in the middle of a deep recession. The difference is, and I've been thinking about this a lot, if you'll remember in the final months of 2008, going into the election, the vote on the TARP bill, TARP was so controversial, you know, the bank bailout bill, basically. But Congress did it in the lame duck session. Republicans and Democrats kind of came together and locked arms and did it in hopes of saving the economy. Well, we're not seeing that uh, at the end of this a lame duck session. We're not seeing at this point Republicans and Democrats setting aside differences and giving more aid to uh, unemployed Americans, hungry Americans. So I think that what we're seeing now is going to set the tone for the first 100 days. I can't recall a split screen moment, at least in my lifetime, of the stock market being as robust as it is and the food lines. We see pictures of food lines so long. And I'm just not sure that we cover that enough. We talk about it enough. And I think of farmers. I think of food. I mean, there is a a hunger crisis in this country. And I'm not sure that that is addressed enough in Washington. That shouldn't be partisan. People waiting in, in a food line for three hours, I bet it's pretty much a mix of Democrats and Republicans. I mean, this is not just a one party issue. So I think that that sort of sets the table, if you will, for the first 100 days. But I think the first 100 days of the of the Biden administration uh, will be consumed by some type of big economic stimulus package. And I'm guessing, you know, we can already hear it, a word that really has not been in the lexicon for much of the last four years, deficits. We've not talked much about the deficit, but I can already hear people talking about, oh, the deficit. Well, look, I mean, spending has been pretty much a runaway over the last four years. So we'll see how that sort of changes the debate next year in a Democratic administration. But look, I think most economists will tell you that to jumpstart the economy, there needs to be another round of economic stimulus. So I think that will be driving everything. We also know that Biden, new administration, incoming administration, is going to do a lot of executive action, You know, probably reversing a lot of uh, things that the Trump administration did from some climate agreements to some immigration things, perhaps. But I really think the bread and butter issues of the economy are going to uh, really speak to the successes or failures of the Biden administration. So what I, I kind of sense that a lot of Republican senators I talk to hope they get something done and work together on some things. I think it will be a new day in Washington. Every, every inauguration ushers in a new day, a new moment. And One thing that's been sort of interesting is to go back in time and listen to some concession speeches that some presidents have given. And I was listening to the Al Gore one the other day that he gave in December of 2000. Must have been a very hard speech to give, but he gave it. And on Inauguration Day, on January 20th, 2001, 
we would have had no idea that 9-11 were, you know, would be coming in nine months. But there really was a period of that going into the spring. It, it was a new day and there was some, you know, cooperation on things. So I actually hope I'm, you know, perhaps I'm being naive, but I think that you know, despite partisan differences, I think that there's an impetus on both sides to get something done. Republicans in 2022 have a very difficult Senate map. And they know that they will have to have some accomplishments on the board. It won't just be blocking the Biden administration. So I guess overall, one of the big takeaways from this election that I think feeds into next year, this was not a landslide win for Joe Biden. It certainly was not for Democrats. I mean, Joe Biden, at the end of the day, history will show that more people voted for him than any other president in history. More people also voted for Donald Trump than any other candidate in history. So huge interest in the election. But boy, down ballot, Joe Biden did much better than Democrats. So maybe the country was sending everyone a message. You know, they want some divided government, but uh, let's hope they can you know, sort of come to an agreement on some things. So we'll see about that. But the takeaway of the election, if you look at the map, and I love studying you know, the map, just uh, sitting down and see how counties went and things. Joe Biden did much, much better than Hillary Clinton. But down ballot, Democrats did not because they know they have a brand problem. The Democratic Party has a brand problem with this country, and I think that that is something that uh, Joe Biden basically squeaked by because people were voting against Donald Trump, no doubt, and I think people saw Joe Biden as kind of this interim figure to try and like you know calm the waters a little bit. But this was not a big referendum on the Democratic Party being the uh, direction that the country wants to go, not by a long shot. And John mentioned redistricting. I mean, we'll see that play out in spades in redistricting because Republicans had a very good uh, run at state legislative seats in November. John, when you look at a map that is increasingly neither red nor blue, but purple, and when you look to the first hundred days of the Biden administration, what do you hope to see in that time? Well, you know, uh, a friend of mine and I were, were talking over the weekend, and both of us are Washington types, and, and we both said, you know, it would really be nice just to be bored, really bored for, for a while. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very struck, and, and Jeff mentioned, I'm, I'm struck by uh, the, the competency of the folks that have been named so far by Vice President Biden to, to serve in the administration. These are folks that have been around a long time. I'm one of those folks that, that say, you know, if you want to come to Washington, your best attribute ought not to be that you don't know anything about Washington. You know, for those that say government should be run like a business, well, if you're going to run a business, you're going to want competent people running that business. And and you could disagree with with some of the folks that Joe Biden is going to appoint, but certainly they they do know how government works. And that's important. And we're going to have to work our way through that process and and work with those folks. A lot of those folks that, that he's named, we have worked with in one form or another uh, over the years in, in agriculture, and um, I think we, we will have some, some good opportunities if we make those opportunities happen. Jeff, I want to come back to something that John just said there. He was kind of tongue-in-cheek, but he said, we want to be bored. <laughs> People may have varying opinions about the last four years, but one thing that's pretty much universally agreed upon is that it hasn't been boring. It has been unconventional, unpredictable. It's kept journalists like you very busy. So with a potential return to normalcy looming, are you worried as a journalist about being bored? Well, look, I mean, I wouldn't mind, uh, you know, not waking up to a tweet and wondering, you know, like, 
like what that means or what that, you know, there is a bit of a regular order to uh, things. My first White House I covered, like I said, was President Bush and then President Obama. And there was not, despite policy differences, things were pretty much the same. Sort of knew what the president was going to do. There was a regular order to things. I mean, President Trump was elected as a disruptor, no doubt about it. You know, he would call that one of his best attributes. So I think the Biden administration will be more to a lack of a better way to say it, boring. Um, I'm fine with that. I think that, look, there are so many challenges facing the country. I think the biggest thing over the last four years, and I think so many books will be written about this and historians will be studying this period, you know, as an inflection point, I think, in our country. And we'll see which way we go from here. But there are so many distractions and shiny objects that are are chased one way or the other that really have nothing to do with the matter at hand. I find it kind of extraordinary that we are here at the end of this year. We can see the hospitalizations. We can see the pandemic. I know just by talking with my mom back on the farm in Exeter, she tells me every day someone new who has coronavirus, someone else is in the hospital. The Fillmore County Hospital in Geneva is chuck full. They're sending people to Lincoln. Omaha's full. They're, you know, my uncle, my 93-year-old uncle, he died of COVID in a nursing home in Fairmont, Nebraska. He had not seen anyone for eight months. He was locked in. He followed the news. He was very plugged into things. And apparently a traveling respiratory therapist going from nursing home to nursing home infected some people. So this affects everyone. So I think enough of this like fighting over the election. COVID is a very serious thing. Yes, it has politics in it, no doubt. But I think that this is something that I guess it's not boring in that respect, but it is we should focus on the important things. And I think the important things are you know, just getting this out of the way. And I think the U.S. standing in the world has been... Uh, really hurt by this. Countries look to the United States for leadership and COVID has shown um, some issues. So this is going to be something that will be unraveling for a long time here. But I think COVID and the economy are important. And I think it will be, you know, I guess if we call that boring, uh, it will be refreshing, I guess, in some respects to focus on the matter at hand here and not all these sideshows. Certainly, COVID and the economy were two of the most discussed issues in this presidential campaign. But from the Biden campaign, we also heard a lot about climate and we heard a lot about trade policy. When you look to the Biden administration in its next four years, how do you see them taking a different tack on those two issues, which are near and dear to corn farmers? For sure. I mean, I think that, you know, some degree it will be a return to what was happening before President Trump uh, took office in terms of climate. I think on the first day, uh, President-elect Biden has said he's going to uh, rejoin, sign an order and try and rejoin the Paris Accords. Um, In terms of the practical uh, functions of this, I guess we'll just have to see what the next iteration of that is. I mean, this is not 2016. Everything has changed with the economy. So I think the burden on the Biden administration will be to, A, sell this, policy to the American people. And the trade, I think, is the biggest question. We've sure not heard much talked about so far in terms of China. I mean, when um, I was in the room in Wilmington, Delaware, the other week uh, when, uh, when Joe Biden was announcing his new national security foreign policy team, and the word China wasn't raised. That, of course, is front and center in every trade discussion. So I think in terms of farmers, I mean, that is something that you know, the Trump administration certainly had a mixed record on China. But I think the disruption and the unpredictability actually served the U.S. pretty well in that respect. 
that in many cases he kept President Xi Jinping on his feet. They didn't know exactly what they were going to do. So I think we'll have to hear more from uh, President-elect Biden on what he's going to do with China and trade policies. But I still remember every time we talk about trade, I still remember a bumper sticker on a pickup truck that was always at the grain elevator in our um, nearby town. This is during the 80s farm crisis. It said, trade, not aid. And I remember my dad always used to talk about, we just want a fair shot. We just want a level playing field to be able to sell our goods and trade our things. So there was a lot of aid given to farmers in the Trump administration, without question. He would talk about that a lot. And he would call them, my farmers, my farmers, I've given you aid. Well, that, you know, that's certainly appreciated, but I think that people want more opportunity to do more trade on the market. So I think aid is something that uh, that will be a question, I guess, if the Biden administration continues that. But talk about contributing to the deficit and just being a Band-Aid for not an overall solution. So we'll have to keep our eye on all of that. But who he um, appoints as ambassadors will be important. And the U.S. Trade Representative, we still don't know who's going to serve in that position. Boy, that will sure be important as well. To Jeff's point, John, what does the NCGA hope to see as it pertains to trade and climate from the Biden administration and how do farmers stand to benefit here? You know, on climate, I think we have some huge opportunities. You know, let's, let's first of all, let's, let's realize that cap and trade is gone. It's dead. It's not going to happen. But there's certainly a, a, a lot of demand for ways to reduce the amount of carbon in the, in the atmosphere. The corn plant is probably one of the most unique and wonderful biological events that there is out there because it can do just that. It takes carbon out of the air, puts it in the soil, and in the meantime produces food, feed, and fuel. So, you know, we're really in a, in a good spot in the corn industry right now if this is done right, if it is done in such a way that it is more, you know, voluntary, if it's incentive-based rather than regulatorily based. So if we can break through and show the benefits of incentivizing farmers to continue and accelerate the innovation that they have been utilizing on their farms in order to reduce that carbon in the atmosphere, I think we have some wonderful opportunities. It has to be done right. It And the devil's in the details. Devil's in the details not only in any legislation that might pass, but the devil's in the details in the regulatory processes as well. And that's where really you get to personnel being policy when it comes to political appointments, uh, whether it be at, at USDA or EPA or, or any of the other departments or agencies. Climate is a real opportunity for us if we do it right. Trade, obviously, we can export a lot more corn from the United States, whether it be in the form of number two yellow dent corn or in the form of chickens or dairy or pork or, or beef or ethanol or distiller's dry grain. We have so many things that we can export to a world that is very much hungry for those products. So we have some great opportunities, uh, but we're going to have to work at it. We can't do one of two things, which oftentimes Americans do, either sit back and complain or sit back and figure somebody else is going to do it. So as far as NCGA is concerned, we're going to be active, we're going to be involved, and we're going to win some, probably lose some. But as long as our organization stays united and our industry stays united, I think the sky's the limit. Jeff and John, I know that prognostication is not either one of your 
games. And certainly if we had been sitting around in 2016 trying to prognosticate what the Trump term would hold, we would have all struck out entirely. But any predictions for 2021, Jeff, as far as what we're in store for under the new administration? I think it may be a bit of a back to the future kind of moment. I think it will be sort of a leveling of things. Again, I think the economy and coronavirus are front and center in all this. So hopefully the vaccine distribution gets uh, rolled out properly and the economy gets back on track. I don't think it will be a term of a lot of big things happening. I think it will be a lot of you know, some things changing and a return to more traditional norms. But in terms of big ticket items, I don't know that it's a, a caretaker presidency. Joe Biden has talked about being a bridge to the future. Look, I think that the intramural struggle inside the Democratic Party is going to be one of the most fascinating things. And the degree to which President-elect Biden handles that is going to be fascinating, I think. So um, and I think that 2024 is going to start very quickly. And I guess that will be kind of one thing that we talk about. If President Trump goes forward and starts immediately running for 2024, that will, um, A, frustrate a lot of Republicans in the Senate who are hoping for a clear path. So that's something else I'm keeping our eye on. What does President Trump sort of do and what impact does that have on A, legislation, but B, the rebuilding and rebirth of the Republican Party? Let me ask Jeff just a kind of a, a, a an aside question. If President Trump decides to run in 2024, how is that going to affect the Mike Pence's or the Ted Cruz's or Marco Rubio or or any of the folks that ran for the Republican nomination in 2016? Do you see those folks standing aside or do you see a fight? I see a fight. I do not see folks standing aside for President Trump, um, at least most. And I think that will be, I'll tell you what, when you talk to some of these Republicans, and I won't name names here, but just in generally, they would want nothing more than for him to exit stage right and allow them to come forward here. So I think the there'll be a few that probably come out and poke the bear maybe and sort of see how it goes. Others may kind of hold back, but I do not anticipate President Trump having a free pass to the nomination I will be surprised if he ends up running again. I think that this is a good placeholder position for him, something to keep talking about. But I view Nikki Haley, I view Tom Cotton, uh, Marco Rubio, Josh Hawley, others as uh, voices that will probably challenge President Trump at some point. So we'll see. But I think in terms of the rebirth of the, of the Republican Party, he holds a lot of cards in that. But I don't see him getting a free pass. I think Vice President Pence is someone who may be a loser in this. I, I really don't see much uh, of an appetite for him as much as some of these other new faces. Uh, he'll probably have a much trickier role to speak out against uh, President Trump than some others might. But I think you'll see people sort of respectfully say it's time to turn a page. And then another question, uh, Jeff, and, and we're looking at the Democrats, uh, particularly in the House. I think that for me personally, much too much has been written and said about the squad. And when I look at the squad versus the, the three Democrats who defeated three Republican incumbents in 2018 in the Commonwealth of Virginia. One of those Democrats was a retired Navy captain, spent a lot of time on, on surface warships. Another was a federal prosecutor, and the last was a, a CIA operative. There's three women who are kind of the, the counterpart to the squad 
in the Democratic caucus. And one of those women was very vocal in, in a recent caucus meeting about, let's quit talking about defunding the police. Let's quit talking about the crazy stuff. Do you see kind of this split in the Democratic Party to be somewhat similar to what the Republicans dealt with with the advent of the Tea Party? I do. I think it's very it's very reminiscent of that. And the Tea Party, of course, was something that you know, essentially arose out of uh, the Obama administration, out of spending other things. And the, uh, you know, the squad, for lack of a better term, is something that arose out of the Trump administration. But I mean, the congresswoman who you were speaking of, Abigail Spamberger, she spoke very forcefully during a private Democratic caucus meeting after the election, saying that this sunk a lot of Democratic members of Congress, you know, the defund the police, the socialism label, and other things. It's one of the reasons Republicans gained 11 seats in Congress. That was something that the leaders of the Republican Senatorial Committee and the Congressional Campaign Committee on the House side were very pleasantly surprised at the outcome of the November election and were not expecting to have uh, such gains. So, look, I think the what's happening inside the Democratic Party will be a huge challenge for Joe Biden, and it will become a big story, without a doubt. It's a big tent Democratic Party, but if you look at the country— Boy, I remember, and this isn't that long ago. I know I'm getting older and older, but when I came to Washington to cover, I've also spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill. North Dakota had two Democratic senators. South Dakota had a Democratic senator. Nebraska had a Democratic senator. Down the middle of the country, there was, uh, you know, certainly in Iowa, uh, Tom Harkin and Chuck Grassley. I think that, I don't know if those days are over, but they might be because of the brand of the Democratic Party. And I think that that is a huge, huge challenge for Democrats here. Um, I hate to be nostalgic about this, but I do think that government sort of got more done when there was a little bit more uh, political diversity and geographical diversity inside the parties. You know, uh, Jeff, you you mentioned Abigail Spanberger, and she was also on this podcast, uh, showing Mm -hmm. just the caliber of guests that we have on, on this podcast. But we had Abigail on with Dusty Johnson, a very conservative Republican from South Dakota, and the two of them were on the podcast to talk about the No Labels Caucus and talk about the efforts that are going on in in the House of Representatives with that group, uh, equally divided between uh, Republicans and Democrats. Given that the somewhat narrower majority that the Democrats have in the House, do you see efforts like the No Labels effort to be one that has some potential to be the honest broker to get things done? I think so. I mean, I think party leadership is something that is, uh, you know, I guess that's the one thing that has not changed in this equation. Like that is something that, I mean, for all the changes in the White House, certainly big changes in the executive branch, Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi are likely still in their same position. So I think that how leaders on both sides sort of control their caucus will be sort of an interesting thing. But I think that so many members of Congress are so frustrated by just the lack of ability really to vote on big things or to get anything done. There's always been kind of you know, this, this uh, no labels caucus and the problem solvers uh, caucus. They come together to do things, but it is a leadership driven committee. So I think that this is the last Congress, uh, the last congressional term of Nancy Pelosi. We'll see if she loses her grip a little bit on her caucus this time as well. But boy, such a narrow majority. So it's pretty fascinating, actually, to think of how the executive and legislative branches will work together. We cannot 
think of a time, I think I read this since 1945, there's not been such a slim House majority for the uh, ruling party with the party um, in power in the presidency. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for members to sort of drive this a little bit more than leaders. We'll see. Well, and one thing that we, we always need to remind ourselves, uh, and that is if we elect people to the Congress who are going to go to Washington and fight, we really don't have any reason to go ahead and, and sit back and say, I can't understand why they can't get anything done. Right, right. So, you know, Jeff, in recent years, well, we've Politicians always have used, uh, you know, that that old trope about fake news or the media is against me or the media does, doesn't uh, portray things accurately. But we've seen that on steroids over the last few years and more and more scrutiny of, of journalists and networks and their political leanings than we've ever seen before. So how do you as a as a member of the press corps navigate this hyper-partisan landscape and, and maintain some degree of objectivity in your reporting? I think the biggest thing is that we have so much more information at our disposal now, more than ever before. Just from your own computer, you can just find out every flavor of news that you want. And I think that is a very good thing. One of the drawbacks is, mixed in with this, is some fake news. And there actually is such a thing as fake news. That's absolutely true. But what it's not is news that you disagree with. Fake news is news that is not true, is made up, is propaganda, is you know just an example of you know there's uh, um, millions and millions of ballots were fraudulent. That is fake news because it's not proven. So I think what uh, what this president, President Trump, has done is a very good job of convincing people to um, not believe in institutions and to question things that they see that aren't favorable to him. And I will tell one story about uh, Donald J. Trump. I first met him in uh, 2011, I believe. I was at the New York Times, and he was thinking about running for president back during the 2012 campaign cycle. And I went up to New Hampshire to see him on an early visit, and we you know, had a good interview, a good visit. At that point, he was talking about uh, President Obama's birth certificate and things, but I wrote a story. It was in the New York Times the next day. It wasn't on the front page in visiting New Hampshire. And Michael Cohen, his now, of course, uh, disgraced lawyer, he called me the next day and said, Mr. Trump liked your story, but wondered why it wasn't on the front page. I thought, well, that's interesting. I thought, you know, we covered it. I was actually a little surprised that we would even like, write a story because no one really thought that he'd be running for president, but we did. Anyway, fast forward to the Iowa State Fair, August 2015. Donald J. Trump's a candidate for president. He's taking the state fair by storm. I mean, who doesn't love any state fair, but the Iowa State Fair is a special one to me. Walking down Grand Avenue, the Grand Concourse, surrounded by people, he sees me. He knows me by name, which I was kind of surprised at, but he's a very good reader of the newspaper and watching and consumer of news. He's like, Jeff, he's like, I've been wanting to ask you, why the hell did you leave the New York Times? That's the best paper in the world. <laughs> and I said, oh, you know, I just uh, thought I'd try my hand at, uh, at TV. And at that point, I still have a picture of, of me holding a CNN microphone, interviewing him at the Iowa State Fair then. That was long before he was a critical of CNN, long before he was critical of the New York Times. So that became something after he was elected. And even during his first years as president, he has a very different demeanor with reporters one-on-one -on -one in the Oval Office than he does uh, what he projects. He loves stories being written about him. Even if they're negative necessarily, he tries to shape them. So I've had many one-on-one -on -one conversations with him. So his view of the media is different than he wants his supporters' view of the media to be. And of course, it's soured a little bit in the last couple of years. But early on, he was definitely 
a big follower and believer in, um, I guess what he would now call mainstream media. And that's probably why he was elected. Look at those hours and hours and hours of his rallies that uh, ran on TV, which helped him be elected. And again, daily journalism is the most attainable version of the truth at that moment. Some days looking back, you don't get it right. No question at all, you don't get it right. But believe it or not, the story and the objective is to try and get it right. And I always have my red state friends and family in mind as I'm doing my job because I think it's important to be credible. And uh, there's no doubt that uh, media has taken a big hit on that. Some self-inflicted, I would say most not. Well, Jeff Zeleny, uh, senior White House correspondent for CNN. You know, this has been a really great discussion and we've talked about an unprecedented campaign and, and I'm sure you're gonna be telling stories about this for many, many more years to come. But we really appreciate your insights. Uh, they've been valuable and we appreciate uh, you taking your time to share them today. Jeff Zeleny, the senior White House correspondent for CNN, uh, joining us here on the NCGA podcast. Uh, and I'm John Doggett, the CEO of the National Corn Growers Association. Thanks for listening and tune in next month for another episode of Wherever John May Roam, the NCGA podcast. That is going to wrap up this edition of Wherever John May Roam, the National Corn Growers Association podcast. New episodes arrive monthly, so make sure you subscribe in your favorite app and join us again soon. Visit ncga.com to learn more or sign up for the association's email newsletter. Wherever John May Roam is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association and produced by PodCamp Media, branded podcast production for businesses, podcampmedia.com. For the National Corn Growers Association, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.